coming up in today's Film Disruptors. We're, we're kind of trying to navigate the most abundant, dynamic, and complex communication system in human history where story lives. And not only is it, you know, interactive and participatory and, you know, the scale is uh, like in, insane, but it also is learning to think and it's becoming distributed across every object in our cities and in our homes and in our offices. And it's even becoming uh, kind of uh, extensions of our own body, and in some cases starting to become embedded in our bodies. So that is a crazy kind of, you know, <laughs> canvas for storytelling. Um, and artists are trying to figure out how to make meaning with that. Hello, welcome to Film Disruptors with me, Alex Stoltz, where we share insights and strategies from the leaders who are redefining and reimagining film and storytelling. Today's guest is Kamal Sinclair, at Kamal Sinclair on Twitter, who is director of the New Frontier Lab at Sundance and an internationally recognized expert in emerging and immersive media. And in this wide-ranging conversation, we tap into Kamal's deep knowledge of the immersive storytelling space, new technology. We discuss Sundance, of course, as well as diversity and strategies for success as an artist. And I have to say that some of what Kamal shared in this episode blew my mind, not only in the projects and artists she is working with, but also in a brilliant deconstruction and reframe of the diversity debate, which for me was completely revelatory. This episode is in two parts, and you are listening to part two. If you are enjoying the show or just want to find out more, there are a couple of ways to stay in touch. Firstly, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Just click subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop onto your device your desktop, however you like to listen to your podcasts. Also, you can sign up for updates at the home of Film Disruptors. That's www.alexstoltz.com. Just enter your email to receive all the latest Film Disruptors news and episodes straight to your inbox. And this is also where you can access previous episodes, find out more about our featured guests, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and I really hope you enjoy part two of this two-part conversation with Kamal Sinclair. And with Kamal having already made the point that diverse stories are now an economic necessity, I started part two by asking Kamal whether she is seeing a change behind the camera as well, particularly on the emerging and immersive storytelling side. Yeah. And I can tell you a little bit of that history and how it got to that in such a short time. Um, when the other one, another really important piece to kind of give context to what I'm going to share in terms of my observation of the space over the seven years I've been involved, um, is that we all, the other mythology that has to kind of get deconstructed, not only about, Oh, you know, people aren't going to like back, you know, 10 years ago, oh, people aren't going to go to see an all-black film or they're not going to go out to see a, a you know, black female lead 
And now that is just absolutely getting (laughs) deconstructed by the numbers that are coming out. But um, the other mythology around innovation specifically, which is really important for the tech sector, part of the convergence um, in this emerging media space, is that if you, I used to believe that white, able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual men (laughs) were the innovation leaders um, historically just because of legacy privilege, not necessarily because of superiority. And, and that was just my assumption. Like, you know, of course, if you got resources and, and power, you'll be able to make the investments to do the R and D to find the, the, like the next thing, the next big thing. But then when I scratched the surface on that, I realized that is actually mythology that is not true. If you look at major disruption cycles, there is a cross pollination and intersectional and a thing that happens, it's about, so it's not about where the innovation is coming from. It's about who has the power to monetize it and to amplify and to take that kind of flagship position in terms of the stereotype around the innovator. An example would be, you know, Oscar Michaud, 49 independent films at the, in the first, you know, 30 years of film, African-American filmmaker helped to define the medium, but yet black people behind the camera and film are just now even starting to get a small percentage gain, um, you know, now. So we know like, and then another example would be the first social, the, the person that created social circle, social media, which Friendster, MySpace and Facebook copied was a black man named Omar Wasso. And he started back in the nineties with New York online and then created black planet, which MySpace literally says in an interview, we adopted that methodology and expanded it to a broader audience. And when I asked him why uh, black folks are over-indexed on social media, do you think that because you're black and created the methodology for it, that that there's some kind of affinity because you're black, you put some kind of cultural affinity into the methodology that we respond to, like call and response. And he said, no, not accidentally, not subconsciously. He said explicitly, I was trying to create a call and response website on the internet. So the entire, one of the largest disruptors and ecosystem builders of the 21st century around media and social culture and economic disruptions came from the African ethos of call and response. But the flagship vision of who's the innovator of social media is Mark Zuckerberg not knowing that he's modeling an African ethos of call and response. So that's an important part. I I feel like really important to lay that groundwork because when I came into virtual reality in 2012, which is already, it already had a history of, you know, this is a 40 plus year medium. It's it's as old as gaming itself. Um, But when I came into it, the thing that sparked the second cycle of rebirth of investment was the combination of a queer black woman and half Puerto Rican, half black woman, a Latina woman and Palmer Lucky, a white young 19 year old man. And so that combination of, you know, Noni de la Pena creating a piece that was compelling um, on traditional VR uh, stuff that was at USC, like technology, uh, Shari Frilo curating that for the Park City Festival not being able to use USC equipment because it was $50,000, I didn't want it to leave campus. The intern, Palmer Lucky, then goes, hey, maybe we can use the smartphone to kind of simulate this virtual reality experience 
on something that is more portable to come to Park City. That was the prototype for the Oculus Rift. You have a very intersectional group of people that defined the value and sparked the, the interest and created the innovation to make that thing happen. From there, you saw people kind of circle the wagons around Palmer Lucky, all mostly white men kind of came to him and said, oh, let's support you in bringing this to Kickstarter, bring it to VC money, and bring it to sell to Facebook. And so you see, in the case of Palmer Lucky, this group of men with power coming around and helping him to stay central to benefit financially from this innovation, whereas with Omar Wasso, that kind of you know support and keeping him centered in the narrative did not happen. Instead, it got kind of appropriated and, and, and duplicated outside of his, you know, outside of his narrative. So that's something that when you say, is this an opportunity for women and people of color to actually get in? We are always there. We were never not there. And it really is about power. So then in 2015, I saw with my own eyes, you know, Shari curated the number, the first major virtual reality storytelling exhibition in history. And I was there on my feet from seven in the morning till late at night, literally touring people through, um, uh, you know, heads of studios, heads of tech companies, heads of gaming companies, uh, venture capitalists, um, foundation presidents, just on my feet, just touring them, touring them, touring them. And everyone was, I had people come like the head of major studios come to me and say, coming out of a Puerto Rican queer woman's virtual reality exhibition with tears in their eyes, Rose Trochet, and they said, oh my God, I thought this was just a roller coaster ride. I didn't know that this could actually be used for heightened storytelling. And then they, they said, this is going to change my strategy. So you had, I watched people shift from thinking this was a gizmo toy to something that could actually be heightened in real time. And the thing that most transitioned them into the buy-in was uh, two Latino women's pieces. We had si over 65% of the exhibition were women, people of color, and queer identified artists. When was, it, when was this come out? What, what year? This is 2015. Yeah. Even though we showed the first VR thing in 2012. And I saw that happen. I saw the a, a very diverse and intersectional group of creators change the investment belief by Silicon Valley and Hollywood. And out of that, the only people that got funded at a significant amount were men and all but one was white. So you see that even though, so that's part of what's the challenge here is it's not about, oh, this gives a way in for people of color that have always been left behind. It, they were there from the beginning and the ones that were catalyzing what was hot even about the medium, but they didn't get the money and support to then fully realize their potential. That's, uh, now, yeah, go on. <laughs> and that, that being said, and I have to say, and two years later, 2017, when we're looking at the submissions that were coming in, there was it was way harder to curate a 60-plus percent group of artists that were majority women, people of color, and LGBTQ identified because the people that had gotten funded that were mostly white men two, three years earlier just were just miles ahead of everybody else because they had the money to invest in the R&D and the excellence building and the failure. They were able to fund failure as much as they were able to fund excellence. Now, that being said, <laughs> we saw opportunities for intervention and to kind of push back on those narratives. 
and we did it, you know, and to be quite frank, I mean, New Frontier is run by like my colleagues are two of my colleagues are queer me and and Charlie are women of color um we have you know and so we 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 made strategic interventions for example when we saw that Nona de la Peña was starting to get kind of lost in the history and I'll give you an example I was invited to be interviewed by a major major media outlet about one white male artist which totally have deep respect for and love his practice. And I was happy to do it. And I came in for the interview and I got filmed. And then at the end, I asked the producer, I said, so what's the title of the piece so I can look out for it? And she said, year 2014, year zero VR. And I looked at her and I was like, how are you going to say 2014 was year zero VR when it actually, first of all, it's 40 plus years. So there's people like Shard Davies and people that have been working on this for a long time that you can't just kind of erase. I said, but secondly, even if you're just talking about the second wave of investment to make it into an industry, the first person to bring the spark was Noni de la Pena, a Latino woman. And so she looked at, I said, if you publish that, you're going to get a backlash of, you know, and that's how those stories happen where a Mark Zuckerberg gets centered as the innovator of social media versus an Omar Watso. In that one moment when they uh, one major article comes out claiming that it was the Zuckerberg that was the first one. And so that article never came out. But what we did at Sundance, when we saw that Noni was getting pushed, pushed kind of out of the limelight and not getting her just twos as an innovator, whether you liked her work or not, we uh, made a strategic um, decision to put her on a podium that year at a major event at the festival and kind of centering that story. We also kind of made sure that we mentioned her name in all of the press junkets to make sure that they knew that Noni was kind of the first in on this wave. And that was the year that Engadget gave her the title Godmother of VR, which went from her getting kind of marginalized in the field to being invited to the UK to sit at the prince's table with next to Eric Schmidt from Google. Like it's, it was that kind of intervention. And because, and then I interviewed women in the field of VR and they all said, I thought this was going to be like a boys club, like tech has been. And I was afraid, you know, not interested in joining or I was afraid I would not fit in or that I wouldn't, fit, you know, the inferiority complexes were there. They said, but when we walked into New Frontier and we saw Rose Trochet and Noni de la Pena and Katie Newman and all these women, uh, Ryan Pulliam, they were like, oh, this is a place for us. So now women, this is the most, there's more women in the VR and XR sector of the technology industry than any other sector because of those, those very strategic and very um, strategic uh, interventions. And the other thing to say, and just to give you a little bit more background on this, when I looked, and I know I'm talking a lot, but I'll... I'll no, it's good. <laughs> it's more interesting than me talking. Um, the other thing that was really interesting in that research I did is I looked at, um, basically, in the out of the 60s and 70s, out of the kind of feminist revolution in the Western uh, in America and so forth, um, women entered computer science at the same rate they entered the law, legal fields, and the medical field, and the physical sciences. And now, 2018, women are almost at parity or at parity with men in those fields. But in comp sci, women dropped out 
like lemmings off a, like just off a cliff just in 83, 84, 1983, 84. And I mean, do you, you know, do you have a guess of why they just dropped out like that? 83, 84, 83, 84. I mean, I'm, is it something to do with Apple launching around then? I, I don't know. A good, good guess, actually. Better guess than most. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was, um, this is, a, again, a, a kind of investigative journalism piece that uh, National Public Radio did. But it turned out it was the stories we were telling about the tech geek identity. Um, and so at that time, the marketing departments for the major tech companies strategically decided to target young white boys at Radio Shacks with, like, you know, computer kits and all that kind of stuff. Um, and which from a marketing standpoint, from a pure, like, okay, these, they have maybe some, you know, (laughs) some, some income that can be used. They, there's a way, so they, that was the target. And the film community also followed suit by creating, uh, images of the tech geek identity, like weird science, revenge of the nerds, war games that centered men as the central. Wow. That's, I'm sorry. That's just like, you know, such an ingrained stereotype. It's almost like. I'd never sort of questioned that, you know, the tech geek archetype. And of course it's fabricated. That's amazing. I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you look at imitation game or hidden figures, you know what I mean? There's all, I mean, that's not, those aren't one-offs. I mean, the imitation game shows that you're talking about a woman and a gay man at the birth of the computer age. (laughs) I mean, like, you know, and then uh, if you look at, you know, like Grace Hopper and all the women that were, you know, fundamental to the development of code because it was considered secretarial work at the dawn of computer age, like the computer computing language evolved out of those secretarial pools. And so you have, um, so, but the thing that's so interesting is when they went back and interviewed the women that dropped out of their positions at tech companies and out of the comp sci, um, programs at universities, they basically said, well, even though they were getting better grades in some cases than their male counterparts, the, the kind of refrain was, I just didn't feel smart enough. I didn't feel like I belonged. So that, that, kind, of, that, that kind of storytelling around, around centering the male identity in those cases triggered women. Um, it's called stereotype threat. It triggered the stereotype threat for women, and they started to believe and to perform. They started to perform inferiority. as in, They started to perform down to the inferiority complex. While simultaneously, uh, they also said that they started to get really hazed by their male counterparts. And so the Gamergate, like that kind of toxic masculinity got triggered. And then you had men performing down, performing their kind of their worst case <laughs> version of themselves. So in both cases, the men and the women became lesser, uh, I think, I believe, for that kind of narrow, non-complex, not intersectional identity framework that was being Um, told in our storytelling landscape through advertising and film. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with Kamal Sinclair of Sundance. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes. In this section, I ask Kamal her advice for storytellers looking to work in immersive media. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it is still, you know, the, the whole kind of, 
you know, definition of emerging media is that it is undefined. There are, which is a great opportunity as well as a great challenge. Um, I myself, you know, <laughs> the only reason I even kind of got to where I am is because I put transmedia producer on my bio before anybody else was putting transmedia producer on their bios. So I got like hired and picked early um, because it was a blue ocean. You know what I mean? Like I, there was not a lot of competition um, because I was, but yet there was also not a lot of infrastructure <laughs> or, or um, you know, kind of um, like there just wasn't clear um, ways of making things happen. And I'll give you one other example, like Lynette Walworth and Nicole Noonan, uh are two of our artists that did a project called Collisions back in 2015 that won an Emmy um, for kind of innovative news and journalism. And that was a VR piece. And at one point we were on a, a call and they just said, oh my God, this is so hard. You can't just like go down to, you know, uh, and rent a rig you know, for this thing. You can't just go and find an editor off of some kind of trade list or, or from recommendations. Like, we have to make everything. We got to build everything from scratch. So there's, so that's one of the challenges of being in this space is you do have to be scrappy. You do have to kind of basically define, but the, the opportunity is you get to define what the processes are, what the you know standards are. You get to be the one to kind of pioneer that road. That's not easy, but it can be done. Now, if you're talking about, you know, things like XR, like uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, kind of these hyper reality, there is, we're a lot more refined now than we were four or three or even three years ago. And there are those opportunities. You can, um, there are uh, kind of pipelines that are being created, um, but it is different. Like I often tell traditional filmmakers, you got to consider um, your Unity developer, developer or your Unreal Engine developer or a volumetric capture studio, you know, like you would and the creative technologists of the Donna film, which were cinematographers and editors. Those were creative technologists. They were not, um, you know, they were people coming from different fields like theater and engineering trying to figure out how to make this medium called film. So it is about expanding your team, who you're collaborating with. Um, and, and honestly, I was at a film studio last, over the summer and saw how they're making one of their new films, there wasn't even a camera involved. It was all in game engine. And this is a film studio. And they were using, they were using volumetric capture technology to, to capture the actors' performances at, as well as mocap and all that. But there wasn't even a camera involved. <laughs> it was nuts. They actually have a real-time filmmaking where they're, they, they have these like little tricked out, you know, kind of manual things that a cinematographer can use to, fit, to, to kind of zoom in and zoom out and, and kind of do panning and, and kind of figuring out how to capture what exists in a game engine, not what's existing in terms of a set or a, <laughs> a location. So I, I'm telling people that it's really important to start to develop those relationships with the creative coding community, especially people that know how to work in the off the shelf um, existing tool set, which is tr mainly Unity and Unreal Engine. Um, now, that being said, in terms of support, we're getting more and more institutions, not only the academic institutions, because there's, I can't tell you how many advisory boards I'm on right now, MIT at, you know, University of Nebraska, Johns Hopkins, 
that are founding programs in these fields. So you're going to see, you know, in the next four years, people graduating with the skill set to make this stuff in, uh, you know, in much more, there's gonna be a lot more supply in the supply chain of talent to do that. But um, there's also like, it, for, for a long time, it was just Sundance and Tribeca <laughs> that were supporting artists in this field. Now, you're seeing it across the world. Venice Biennale has it. TIFF, um, obviously, is out. So there's there are grant also the the grant makers for the independent film community are expanding their um, their uh, granting to artists that are working in these fields. So it's starting to map on to the independent filmmaking ecosystem much more robustly. Um, but you know, there's still going to be some holes in that, but, you know, send us an email at new frontier lab, new frontier story lab at sundance.org and we'll point in the right direction. <laughs> that way, if I'm ever gone, you have somebody that, you know, can, that'll be evergreen. What, what are you most excited about at the moment, Kamal, in terms of, you know, in terms of a new storytelling possibility or technology? Sure. Yeah, I, I, you know, I will say that, okay, this might seem like, again, I, I go like back in history to talk about a simple answer for something. But, you know, I think that we're in a transition from mass media, which is about broadcasting efficiency and scale, um, and also being able to witness things for, with your own eyes, like, you know, seeing Earth from space for the first time, or being able to witness the front lines of a war zone through the lens of somebody's camera that's there. Um, and now we're, we're kind of trying to navigate the most abundant, dynamic, and complex communication system in human history where story lives. And not only is it, you know, interactive and participatory and, you know, the scale is uh, like in, insane, but it also is learning to think and it's becoming distributed across every object in our cities and in our homes and in our offices. And it's even becoming uh, kind of uh, extensions of our own body. And in some cases starting to become embedded in our bodies. So that is a crazy kind of, you know, <laughs> canvas for storytelling. Um, and artists are trying to figure out how to make meaning with that expansion. And of course I'm talking about you know, the combination of artificial intelligence, immersive media, like like augmented reality, virtual reality, the, uh, you know, the 50 billion objects in the Internet of Things that are coming into market and the, and the wearables and also bioengineering and the ways in which things like media itself, well, they're learning to store not on uh, synthetic materials like silicon, but they're learning to store on DNA molecules themselves. And so this is, and, and also, you know, Caltech over the summer figured out how to create a neural network on DNA molecules, which means, you know, artificial intelligence on DNA molecules. So this is like the implications of the advancements in these fields, not just for storytelling, but for humanity are so awesome um, in some, you know, in, in, positive ways and negative ways that the artists that I'm really excited about and have been following are not only trying to understand the promise of this for storytelling, but they're also questioning what does this all mean about the future of culture? Um, for example, Stephanie Dinkins is one of our artists. She is 
um, photographer by original training. And when she found out that the most socially advanced artificial intelligence on the planet was made in kind of constructed off the image representation and lived data of a black woman named, you know, this is the Bina 48 robot. She, as a black woman was like, huh, we are not represented in technology very often. It's kind of crazy that the most socially advanced AI is black and a woman. Um, and this AI, you know, has citizenship in Saudi Arabia, has been enrolled in philosophy courses at universities. Like it, and so she went and asked to meet this robot and has been in conversation with her for over four years um, and has been pretty kind of struck by the advancement of this, you know, kind of thinking entity, especially around the philosophical um, provocations that she has. Um, but she also realized that with, with artificial intelligence becoming more and more an omnipresent part of our, our society and also seeing how the biased algorithms uh, and the missing data sets because a more homogenous group of people are coding and designing that infrastructure, she um, said, well, you know, what can I do to help deepen, you know, the tech community's relationship to identity and culture so that does not perpetuate and replicate and worsen injustice, um, which these algorithms are kind of being graft onto existing biased and unjust uh, systems like predictive policing, uh, the ways in which algorithms are selecting for leadership uh, through resumes that only picking male resumes and things like that. So she decided to create the first kind of um, artificial intelligence that's based on um, deep community AI and not just you know planetary scale data. So uh, these and so she's created this project called Not the Only One which will be uh, the lived data of three women from three different generations in her family, all black women, that will be feeding their lived data to this AI until they die. It'll be a hundred year long project. Um, and the AI will be able to be in conversation and grow and become more uh, intelligent through interactions with the world and through data from the world, but through the lens of this very kind of deep relationship with a community, with a family, with an identity, and with a culture, to try to see how that adds to the understanding of the future of culture in artificially, in artificial intelligence. Um, you know, when artificial intelligence is kind of the 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 kind of way in which we go forward. And, and just to give you a little bit more context, so we, you know, Web 1.0. You know, looking at it through a social justice lens, you're looking for um, just access to the internet. Web 2.0, you're looking for access, is like where we are now, you're looking for access to the internet on safe and transparent platforms that are responsible with your data. Web 3.0, you're trying to figure out how we navigate, you know, an internet that's completely dispersed um, on objects and things around us. And then Web 4.0, there's so much data in the ecosystem that no single human being can keep up and you need to go through artificial intelligence, personal AIs to navigate it. The artists that I'm so excited about, Stephanie Dinkins, Lauren McCarthy, Heather Dewey Hagborg, um, Salomea Siga, um, these are people that are Luc Dubois. They're really asking the hard questions about how do we be human in that infrastructure. 
Um, and then the other thing I just want to put out there is that I, I think virtual reality and augmented reality are really important explorations for what I feel will be an immersive canvas for storytellers in general, even outside of those headsets. I mean, you're talking about, we have one group of artists that uh, came to our lab with a project called Alexa Call Mom, where they're creating an episodic storytelling platform on Google Home and Alexa, where not only is it where, where you as an audience member can be in conversation with the characters, but you also, the, the AI can kind of hack into your environment through the uh, internet of things that'll be in your homes or in your offices to create a kind of almost like an immersive theater experience in your home. Um, so these are the kinds of ways in which something like VR and learning how to create immersive, compelling worlds or AR then get translated into com completely screenless immersive storytelling like the Internet of Things. So that was part two of my part two conversation with Kamal Sinclair. If you want to find out more about Kamal, listen to other episodes or get in touch, please visit the home of film disruptors, alexstoltz.com. And if you are enjoying the show, why not subscribe on iTunes? And if you could leave a review, that would be very appreciated. So that's it for this episode. I'd just like to say thank you again for listening and I look forward to seeing you again soon. As anyone listening to this show for a while will know, the business of storytelling is something I'm personally very passionate about. And when I'm not interviewing film disruptors, I love applying this passion and using my expertise to help independent storytellers and filmmakers accomplish their goals and get stories made and seen. I do this by working with storytellers intensively or over a longer period to develop the project and strategy for maximum finance, distribution and commercial impact. If you are a filmmaker or storyteller and would like to find out more about how I can help your project, I'd love to hear from you. Please go to alexstoltz.com or just drop me an email at alex at alexstoltz.com. <laughs> <laughs>